0: It's great to see you all. Uh, If you are new and you're a guest with us, my name is Jeremiah. I'm the pastor here at University Baptist Church, and we're so grateful that you're here to worship with us this morning. We're going to continue in a series that we started last week. And if you are here with us, we're we're referring to this series as stories, the goal of discipleship. We're going back through the last chapter, uh, or the last paragraph of the second chapter of the book of Acts. It's a series that, or it's a passage that we looked at earlier in the year, but we're going through it this time with a slightly different bent and angle. And part of what we're, we're looking into and really focusing in on is discipleship. And, and what does discipleship look like? Last week, we talked a lot about this devoted life. And, and ultimately, what we see is that when you truly give yourself to discipleship, it shapes your identity as a person, but it also gives you a task. It gives you something to do, to go and make disciples. And so it compels us to, to encounter both the believer and the non-believer. And so when we truly embrace this, what should happen is transformation. Things should change in our lives. Things should change in the lives of others. We should be overwhelmed with stories of transformation. That's the goal of discipleship, and that's kind of what we're, we're trying to gravitate towards through the course of this series. Now, last week, we looked at that first verse. We talked about the devoted life, and we introduced some things that, that we wanted to say were pretty uh, germane to us as a church. Right, That's part of the difference in going through it this time, is last time we looked at it much more expositionally. Now we're looking at it much more practically in terms of what does it mean for us in the life of UBC. And so we introduced some common terms that are going to help describe how we pursue discipleship here in this church. And what we submitted was, we believe that when you kind of look at the text, and you look at verse 42 that we unpacked last week, and you look at they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer— you can kind of extrapolate that and maybe kind of summarize what you see in the church as being community, teaching and accountability. And so those are the terms that we're, we're going to continue to foster here in the life of our church, that in, if you are engaging in meaningful discipleship, it should always have those elements of community teaching and accountability. So we talked a lot last week about the why discipleship is important and who it leads us to, the believer and the non-believer, as well as what it kind of looks like, community teaching and accountability. So today, we're going to continue that conversation and see a little bit more about how it's pursued in the different arenas we create here to, to see the work unfold. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to pick back up in verse 42. I'm going to read that whole paragraph again. Repetition is king here. And we're going to focus in on verse 43 today. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All right, so what I want to do is I kind of want to break this message into two different components. The first is to really take a look at this text and remind ourselves of of kind of just the the nature of the content, some of the terminology, what it means, okay? And then after we've done that, the second part of the message, I really want us to explore, okay, how is this going to inform how we pursue discipleship here as a church, okay? Okay. And so to begin, let's take a look at this verse and recognize kind of the overarching reaction that kind of first grabs your attention is the fact that everyone is in awe. And so what do we mean by the word awe? What is this reaction that is being pointed out here in verse 43? Well, if you look at this, ver- or this word in its original context, it's where we also get our word phobia. Right? It's, it's where you get this word fear. And, and if you look through the pages of Scripture, you can see that there typically are, are maybe two broad categories of how you can respond with fear, right? Sometimes it's the actual terror, right? It's it's the fear you have when going into battle, or fear of pain, or fear of hardship, or fear of clowns, right? Whatever your phobia might be, right? But it's that that's that fear you want to avoid. But then there's this healthier component to fear that you also find. There's this this uh, understanding of reverence, of worship, right? Of devotion. And the Bible is actually very clear that that's what we should desire, and that there's this, this good aspect to fear that should uh, cult- be cultivated in our lives. That reminds you of a couple passages in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 1, verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All right, so when we truly worship God and, and have a healthy fear of God, it's going to lead us to a level of wisdom. Proverbs fourteen twenty six says, whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. We live through life with a healthy fear of God and an understanding of his sovereignty. It's going to create a, a security for us. It's going to create a foundation for us, a protection for us, a refuge. Proverbs twenty three seventeen: do not let your heart be envious of sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. We should seek this fear. So part of what we're seeing here is the opposite of the fall, right? The, the fall that is de- detailed in the garden Right, Genesis chapter 3 is this refusal to acknowledge God as God. That's the heart of every sin. I'm going to go my own way, do my own thing. The fear of the Lord says, no, I see he is greater, he is sovereign. I come before him with fear and trembling. And so what we have described here in verse 43 is this sense of reverence, of worship, this awe-inspiring response that there is something greater that has to be acknowledged. So that's That's the mark that we see here in this description of the early church. Now, it's a sign to everyone. And because it says everyone was filled with fear, we know that that's two broad groups. The first would be the believers, right? This is a paragraph that's describing the early church. They devoted themselves. They're gathering together. So the church was filled with awe. And when you see that, one of the questions I feel like we need to ask ourselves this morning, is that true today? Is that true of us? Do we live our lives in such a way where we are filled with awe? Is it true of our church? Is it true of you personally? And the question would be I don't know that we always gravitate towards that, especially in this generation. And so, why? There, there's something that has happened that has kind of made our expression of faith almost casual, almost convenient. We live in the area where everything is so much, so comfortable, where it's like Jesus is my homeboy. Right? And so we have this familiarity with Jesus, we have this gratitude to Jesus, but we don't always move with a sense of awe and reverence and fear. Why is that? I think there could be a multitude of reasons, right? and they could be different from one person to the next. Right? A lot of times, I think the common denominator is that we begin to be focused on earthly things rather than on heavenly things. So we go through life, and most of our time, most of our energy, most of our commitments are given towards school or work or family. Other things that are good things, noble things, but, but can distract us if we're not careful. Think about it from a church perspective. I, I see this a lot of times as a staff person, right? Been more than 10 years in ministry, what you can see is this, this hesitation or this tendency to kind of gravitate towards the earthly things. And, and churches can very quickly become so focused on your experience, And so the most of our conversations and most of our work all of a sudden gravitate towards, all right, do we have everything set up? How long is the service going to be? Was it too loud? Did we have everything printed? Do we have coffee? Do we have donuts? What is this experience going to be? Now hear me, those things are important because we want you to feel welcomed. We want you to feel loved. We want things to be clear. But when that dictates our time and our energy, my my concern is that we're not going to be in awe because I don't know that those things evoke a sense of fear and awe and wonder. What evokes fear and awe and wonder is when we radically pursue God's calling in our life, when we take risks, when we're bold, when we're willing to live on the edge and do things that no one else is compelled to do, but we do so because we know, how, we, we, know we have Christ, right? And so I think a lot of times we have to stop and say, am I truly living a life that, that represents this sense of awe and reverence? Now, the other thing that's so compelling about this, though, is that everyone didn't just include the believer, it included the non-believer, right? So, This is Pentecost, right after Pentecost, and this this church is forming, and part of what we're seeing here is that the community surrounding this church is looking in on it, and they're filled with awe. They're amazed at what's happening. And I think if I were to present that question to you, I think the answer would be pretty obvious. What's the perception of non-believers of the church, or of believers? What's the perception of non-Christians of Christians today? Do they stand around in awe? Do they grow in their sense of wonder and fear of God? So to research this, I came across this, this blog post that was written by Tom Rainier. He was the former CEO and president of Lifeway, uh, well known for his research, his writings. And he wrote a blog post about two years ago, 2016, three years ago. I can do math, trust me. Uh, about three years ago that, that highlighted some of the things that reveal the perceptions of people outside the church and what they have of believers. And and this came up in all of his research. And so I was reading through it, and I noticed kind of two general categories in his list. And with each reason, he would offer a little quote that he had heard from somebody in some of his interviews. And so let me read you a couple that represent these two different categories. Here's the first category. One of the things you hear from non-believers and their perception of Christians. I would like to develop a friendship with a Christian. I wish I could find one who would be willing to spend some time with me. I would like to learn about the Bible from a Christian. It would be nice if a Christian invited me to study the Bible in his home or a place like Starbucks. I wish a Christian would take me to his church. I'm 32 years old. I've never had a Christian invite me to church in my entire life. So part of the reason is because there's this common denominator with those lists that that suggests there's this distance between us and people that don't come to church or people that don't consider themselves Christians. There's this separation that exists. There's no real relationship. And it's desired, but we've convinced ourselves that it's a taboo subject, and we shouldn't bring it up, and we need to be sensitive, but nobody really wants to talk about it. And so, of course, they're not in awe, because there's no relationship. There's no risk. There's no no connection, which is what leads to the second category, which are some of these other perceptions. Some Christians try to act like they don't have any problems. So now we look fake, insincere, I don't see much difference in the way Christians live compared to others. No real transformation. No life change. And the number one reason, he said, was Christians are against more things than they are for. They seem negative. They seem unhappy. I don't think it's hard for us to stop and just assess the culture and see that for most people now, when they look in on the church, when they look on believers, they're not standing in awe. And so what's different? What's different that we see in verse 43 that we should pursue today knowing that this context has changed? So what was eliciting this response of, of awe in this particular verse was wonders and signs. Okay, so wonders very literally means miracles. This was the miraculous, right? And there's no other way to kind of soften it. Let's just embrace for a moment again, church, our God is a God of miracles, amen? And we often don't know what to do with it Sometimes it makes us uncomfortable because we don't see him as regularly as we might read them in scriptures, but make no mistake: Our God is the God of miracles. We've talked about this recently, just a few weeks ago. We talked about Elisha and his servant being surrounded by the Arameans, and what did he do? He prayed that God would strike them with blindness. And the miracle unfolded that led to their safety and their transformation. You turn the pages. You get to Acts chapter 5, and you're going to find stories of people bringing the sick, bringing the hurting out into the streets just in hopes that Peter's shadow would fall on him. Acts chapter 19, a reference to Paul, his handkerchief and his apron, healing people. I don't know why people are using his handkerchief. I don't know why he's wearing an apron. All I know is it's healing people. We serve a God of miracles. Do you believe that? Do you really believe it? See, I think we move with this timidity, this hesitation, and we lose the sight of it. We don't don't truly demonstrate and live a life that truly believes our God is a God who performs wonders. And the reason is, is we're afraid, right? If I pray for something bold, if I pray for the miraculous, what if it doesn't come true? I'm going to feel like a fool. And others might see me as a fool. Or if I pray for this person and it doesn't come true, I'm going to give them false hope. And so where do we land? We comfortably land in whatever your will, Lord. And there's nothing wrong with that prayer. Nothing. However, when it's all we pray, it's insufficient. All right, because Elisha wasn't surrounded by the army and said, whatever your will, Lord. No, he said, strike them with blindness. All right, Peter didn't meet the crippled and the lame, and he didn't say, whatever your will, Lord. He said, take up your mat, and walk, right? That is the God that we serve. So let me give you a template of how I would love for us to embrace this as a church. My favorite story in the Old Testament that kind of gives us this model is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You go back to the book of Daniel, read this story. It's a phenomenal one. And here these three men are. They're about to be thrown into the fiery furnace. They're standing before King Nebuchadnezzar, about to lose their lives. And they say, oh, king, we don't need to defend ourselves in this matter. Our God is able to save, and he will. will. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. I love that response. Because in that response, we see a model boldness, faith, maturity. Right? What do they say? Our God is able to save. That's bold. Our God can save us through a fiery furnace. Yes, he can. And he will. Faith. They pray, they demonstrate boldness and faith. But then what do they say? But even if he doesn't, doesn't change how I'm going to respond, doesn't change my belief in him. I won't bow down. Maturity. That's how you pray for these things. We pray boldly. We do so expectantly, but we do so with maturity. That's a great example of how we embrace the fact that our God is a God of wonders. Now, the other thing I want us to maintain here, as we recognize this in this verse, is that we don't pursue miracles for the sake of miracles. We don't worship the miracle. We worship the miracle worker. And what was unique about this is that it was always drawing attention. It was always bringing glory back to God, not to an individual. And that's where signs, this word sign, serves as a great complement to this description. Because signs doesn't have to imply anything miraculous. A simple definition of signs would be evidences of God's presence. It was clear that God was with the church. Another way it was defined by one scholar that I read, I loved this, was that it's unselfish acts done in the name of Jesus, for the name of Jesus. I love that. Right, that's a sign. And so we have any sort of indication, any sort of evidences in our life that God's presence is with us. Any sort of indication, any sort of unselfish act that is done in the name of Jesus and for the sake of Jesus, that's a demonstration that we are different and that God, that God can do miraculous things in our midst. So we evident those things, we show that evidence by radically loving the neighbor, by having faith, by having joy, even in the midst of trial and circumstances, by going to people and sharing the love of Jesus Christ with them. Those are all evidences of God's presence in our life. And what we see is that it wasn't just one or two, it was many. The many wonders and signs. I love that. It's not like the early church was gathering around and going, remember when? Remember that one time? It was awesome. God, I wish that would happen again. It was many. One of the things I don't want us to ever lose sight of is our God is a God of abundance. I'm not talking about wealth. I'm not talking about finances. I'm just talking about how he reveals himself to us. You go read through the first few chapters of Ephesians, what do you see? He lavished his love on us. It's the riches of his mercy. It's always the overabundance. And so we should go through life expecting many uh, wonders and signs that reveal the glory of God. That's what we should see. That's what we should desire. That's what was going on in verse 43. And so the question is, okay, well, where was it originating? How are these things unfolding? And and that's where you see the last part of this verse that says all these things are being performed by the apostles. right, so the word performed is interesting. It it literally means genesis or birth, right, to originate from. So it was coming from the apostles. What is interesting about the word performed is that it's presented in the imperfect tense, which again means it wasn't just a one-time occurrence. This was an ongoing action. It was continuous. They were living in this reality. And it was sent with this word apostles. Now, this is the part that, for me, honestly, is the trickiest part to interpret, and to understand, because when you study the word apostles, from my estimation, you kind of have two different ways that you can see it. On one hand, apostles can be a distinct set of people. You go back and read Acts chapter 1, and they're trying to replace Judas, and they talk about the qualifications, and it needs to be somebody that's been with them the whole time, a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, That was only a few people that were qualified for that, and so there are times where you can see this designation of apostles is speaking to a particular group of people in a particular point in history. And so that could be how you read verse 43, right? That this was only the the wonders and signs performed by this specific group in this particular time. And I I honestly, I can understand that sort of an interpretation. What gives me pause to say that's the only way it should be interpreted is that sometimes you can see this this word uh, apostles and and you see that its root is really just anyone who is sent, a messenger, where the emphasis is on the one who is doing the sending, not just the one who is sent. And so you compare that to moments in the Gospels where Jesus is saying, listen, I'm gonna send you, and you see that as a gift that continues from generation to generation, I can see a much more broader application here. So the way I would want us to receive this verse this morning is to see that ultimately the demonstration of God's presence of wonders and signs was originating with his people. And so that should be true for us today, right? For his believers, for his followers, we should be able to look in on the body of Christ And regardless of the level of the miraculous nature of these wonders and signs, we should see evidences of God's presence. We should see many unselfish acts done in the name of Jesus and for the sake of Jesus. So what we're talking about, stories of transformation. That's the wonder. That's the sign. An opportunity for us to gather and to see the addict overcoming the addiction, Stories of transformation where we see marriages that we thought were in pits of desperation all of a sudden being miraculously reconciled and restored. Stories of of people of all ages willing to forego the comforts of this culture and actually live in another context, dare I say, even submitting themselves to hardship and trial for the hope that other people can know the story of Jesus. We should experience stories like the one we talked about earlier this morning. People that are able to flee some of the most dire situations, and even if it means taking them halfway across the world, they still come here, they awaken to the good news of Jesus Christ, and they live a life of service that impacts many. Those are wonders, those are signs, those are evidences of God's presence, and they make us stand in awe of our Creator. That's what we desire. That's what we're seeing in verse 43. So, my question now for the second part of this message is well, then how do we pursue that? How do we actually make it happen? And I think what is easy and a mistake that we can fall into a lot of times is we'll read something in the scriptures that's inspiring, and then we just run for it. I want to do that! And we just, we just go into it, and we don't stop to actually think, what is it going to take to be prepared? What do I need to do to be equipped? What do I need to actually live this out? And, and it's a very dangerous thing to run into battle and not be prepared. Right, have you ever seen examples of that? I came across this article this week uh, that was speaking to the, the Korean War. It was written in the Washington Post in the early 2000s, and I'm not, you know, an expert on this particular point in history, but I found this article pretty interesting, and, and it served as a greatest example of what can happen when you can go into a fight or go into a task unprepared. So, so the issue was, here's Here's a season in life and a season in our nation's history where we felt compelled to help fight on behalf of democracy. And so we were going to send troops to South Korea to, to help protect the democracy in that region of the world. And so the, the, the strategy was literally to show an arrogant force of strength, to quote the article. And so we're going to send troops, and, and South Koreans are going to be so... Uh, excited for this. They actually come out in the streets and they applaud and they celebrate the arrival of the troops. And this, this article gives a quote of one of the commanders that was there when this first happened. He said, it made us feel like we had already won. There was great enthusiasm and expectations of us. The rumor was as soon as they saw American troops, they turn around and go back. That was the mentality. And that's sometimes the mentality we have as a church, just show up and they'll run away. Right? We can defeat the enemy just by by being there. But what our troops discovered is that they weren't going to run and that they were actually incredibly overwhelmed and not prepared. Stories of machine guns that didn't work, radios that malfunctioned, soldiers and troops that were barely equipped to engage in this sort of combat. Here's how the article also shed light on this situation. The war began with an ugly discovery. The wheels had fallen off the mighty U.S. military that had rolled the victory in World War II. The poorly trained and inadequately armed troops thrown in the path of the invading North Korean army were overwhelmed. Another commander was quoted, the truly pathetic thing is never have the troops sent into battle been more understrength, undertrained, under-equipped, and under-mentally prepared than we were in Korea. And because of that lack of preparation, it sparked a massive rearmament in our nation, but not without some true painful lessons and some embarrassing defeats. This is what happens when you go into battle unprepared, ill-trained, ill-equipped. And so when we read things like this and we say, all right, let's go see stories of transformation. Let's go pursue these things. Let's see signs and wonders. My question for us, church, is are we ready? Are we prepared? Because that's not an easy task. You can't just show up and expect the enemy to run. And so what do we do to equip the saints? That's the question that I want us to unpack for the rest of our time here this morning. Ephesians 4 talks about it. This is the work of the leaders in the church to equip the body of believers. And so what does that look like here? Well, this takes us back to discipleship, right? This takes us back to the importance of finding these elements of community, teaching, and accountability that are going to force us to truly learn what does it mean to engage intentionally to see God's work in our lives and in the lives of others. And so here's the deal. When we think about this from a church perspective today, I'm not talking so much about an individual perspective. Absolutely, there are things and disciplines that you need to foster in your own life. Reading the scriptures, regular prayer, all those different elements that are so important, all those different disciplines. But what I'm talking about is something more germane to us as a body of believers. And how do we pursue those things? Okay? And, and in particular, when you think about a church, a church can fill its calendar with a lot of events. You can go to camp, You you can go to VBS, you can come to all these different socials and all this other stuff. What I want to talk about this morning are the three arenas that we have said this is going to be the foundation of how we try to equip one another to this work of discipleship, where we continue to remind each other of this devoted life, all right? And so we hit on this a little bit last week. The three arenas where we find these things would be corporate worship, this main service. It would be Sunday Connect, what is traditionally referred to as Sunday School. And then what we refer to as discipleship groups or D groups, which is also commonly referred to as small groups. So let me, let me walk through those different arenas for a moment, because in each arena, our expectation is that you're going to encounter a level of community accountability, a community teaching and accountability, but each one will have different strengths and weaknesses. And so we're going to advocate for all three. And you're probably sitting there, if you're familiar with church, going, you know, Jeremiah, most churches really just ask for two. Right? You can go to most churches and they're going to say, hey, here's our service and here's Sunday school. Or hey, here's our service and here's small groups. So are we crazy? Maybe. But I think after I've had a chance to, to explain why we feel like all are important, then hopefully that adds to, to why you see the value in all of them. But I think if you stick with me, I can even show you that if anything, we haven't asked enough. Okay, so let's, let's talk about this for a moment. Corporate worship. The strengths of corporate worship, gathering together in a service like this. We hit on this a little bit last week. Community, this is going to be your widest expression of community. This gives you an opportunity to have a diverse experience with other people of different ages, different races, different backgrounds, and to come together and to sing together, to commune with each other and commune with God. This is the only time in your week, most likely, that you're gathering with this many people and singing his praises. And there's something beautifully sacred about that. Regardless of the style regardless of the length of the service, regardless of, of the quality, all the, it's unique and it's sacred. An opportunity to commune with each other and with God. Right? You look at teaching. What makes teaching here unique is that the expectation should be that whoever's standing on this stage has a certain calling, has given a certain amount of time and preparedness, has a certain level of training to present God's word faithfully and clearly. That's the expectation of me and anyone else that we ask to speak up here. And that, that should help in some ways serve as a, hopefully a theological anchor for our church and for our body believers. Accountability. It allows us to cast a vision that we can pursue together. Something we can say, hey, what, what can we all accomplish? Let's think collectively here. It, the most recent example for us is the fact that we launched this kind of 90 and 90 celebration to help commemorate our 90th anniversary. It's been a while since I've talked to you about it. Let me give you a quick update on it. 90 and 90 was this desire that we had this year to help commemorate our 90th anniversary where we said, hey, we want to we try to raise $180,000 so that we can have $90,000 to help the ministries within the church or things going on within the church, and then 90,000 that can just be given away to the community where we can just help bless foster care or the orphan or human trafficking or a local school. And so we've been talking about this, and I told you all that we were going to do something in the fall. Initially, we were thinking October, your sneak peek is, is that part of what we might revise is I might move that up to September, but I'll explain that over the next couple of weeks. But the point is, that was a shared vision. We have something to hold each other accountable to. Hey, we have something that God is calling this body to do, so let's pursue it. And that's unique. But as great as those unique offerings are, there's still limitations in this service, right? If this is your only expression of community, it's going to be incredibly shallow. Even if you show up early and stay late and talk with people. It's not going to allow the sort of depth that you need to truly build meaningful relationships. Teaching, hopefully the expectations are clear, but it's still one directional. No no opportunity for you to raise your hand and say, I don't understand that. What about this? That is so important to our personal growth. Accountability, it's great to know a larger vision. We have no clue how you're participating in it other than attendance. So it's limited, which is what leads us to these other arenas. Sunday Connect. Let me, let me explain some logistics of what Sunday Connect means for us. This is traditionally referred to as Sunday school. So uh, logistically, 9 o'clock every Sunday morning, we have groups that meet. We, we organize in stages of life. I realize there are a lot of different ways that you can organize these groups. I have yet to find a perfect one. If you have it, come tell me. I'll be willing to listen. But we, we like stages of life. And you come together, and you should there also experience levels of community, teaching, and accountability, but here in a more digestible format. Right now, all of a sudden, community creates a little bit higher level of connectivity because I'm finding people that are in a similar season of life. Somebody else that can empathize what it means to go through retirement or to start a young family or to be going through school or to to go through a new career, whatever it is. And now, all of a sudden, I've got something that's digestible, something that I can really hang on to, and I can start building more meaningful relationships. Teaching. You need to hear from more than one voice. We have a lot of people that are gifted teachers, that are able to come and share what's on their heart and do so in a meaningful way. And in there and in that environment, you have more flexibility. In our Sunday Connect groups, there should be an opportunity to pursue different studies, different subjects like parenting or looking at different world religions and the validity and the the challenges and the questions behind it. Here's what I've asked every one of our teachers. Always use scripture. Everything is based on the Bible. So let me just go ahead and tell you, if you ever go to a Sunday Connect group and they don't open the Bible, you come tell me. Okay? There's accountability for you. Um, Teaching, right? It's different. There's more time for discussion. Now you can ask a question. Now people can contribute. Accountability. Now it's digestible. I'm sitting out here and I'm hearing serve, love, give give myself to other people, love the neighbor. But who? How? When? Well, now I'm in a group where I can say, oh, okay, I can take them food. I can go pray with them. I can go watch their kids. I can, now it's digestible. There's this level of accountability that can now become a little bit more accessible, but there are still limitations, right? Community. Because Sunny Connect groups can grow and be larger in size, you can still be there and be a number more than you're a name. And you may not have a whole lot of depth because there's only so much time, which also limits Teaching. Those teachers, as good as they are, a lot of times they have other jobs. They have other things that they're doing. The level that they have to prepare and all that other stuff is going to be limited. And then guess what? The bell's going to ring. It's time to go. And you're going to have to cut things off and move forward. Accountability. Right? Yeah, I I can serve people, but do I really feel comfortable in that setting, opening up about some of my bigger weaknesses? Some of my struggles, some of the things I'm really wrestling with, especially if there's a bunch of new people, I don't know if I feel comfortable there. And so there's going to be limits to all those things, which is what leads us to our third arena, discipleship groups. All right, so in discipleship groups, a few things logistically here. Discipleship groups are, are our most intimate form of community, our most intimate form of relationships that we try to foster for people. It occurs outside of Sunday. Right? We, we desire for discipleship groups to meet a minimum of two times a month. We would love weekly, but we would, we would settle for two times a month. Enough regularity that it has significance and intentionality. They're launched through your Sunday Connect group. So if you want to find a discipleship group, we'd say, Get to Sunday Connect, and that's where you're going to be able to launch. You launch them at the end of September, and our desire is that you'd commit for a year and you pour into it. And after that year, you have a chance to continue with that group, but we would ask that that group would multiply itself, right? And it would continue to grow. And so here's how community teaching, and accountability work in that format. Community is different. Here, we would ask that discipleship groups start with eight and get no larger than 12. We chose 12 because Jesus chose 12. And so you start with eight because there's a sense of a small group community, but you leave room to invite people. People outside the church or inside the church. You always make space for people. But you cap it at 12 because at certain points, you get to this number where, again, you no longer feel safe. You become more of a number than a name. And so we limit it to 12. The community should be rich and meaningful. That's where I can truly find myself to be known and open up. Teaching is different. Teaching in discipleship groups, we say, is purely the Bible. We are not asking people to bring in other book studies. This is not Beth Moore, not Francis Chan, not David Platt. No, you can leave those at home. Read them some other time. Come together and learn how to read Scripture together. Highly discussion based. You facilitate, you don't lecture. We gather around each other and we say, okay, well, how do we see this text? What, how does it impact me personally? What should I do? How, how can I encourage you in pursuing this as well, which is what leads us to accountability. Here in accountability, I'm going to be open. I'm going to be vulnerable. And that's scarier, but now I have a space where I can say, hey, I'm struggling with this. I need help with this. Can you help me? And you're not going to be met with judgment. You're not going to be met with ridicule, but love and encouragement and understanding. It's accountability. But there's still limitations that say, hey, if this is all we did, we'd really be thirsting for these other two arenas, right? Because over here, if you only have community with eight to 12 people, that's risky because things go wrong and you need a greater exposure. You need greater diversity. You need a greater enrichment in your life, right? If this is the only teaching you get, the risk there is that if people just sit around and say, I think it means this and I feel it means this, it's not hard to go wayward quick. You need a theological anchor. Something that you can refer back to. Accountability. If there's no larger vision, if there's no larger call, it's so easy for a small group of people to be like, you know what, we can skip this part. And before you know it, you got a social club. More than a group with purpose. So you need all three arenas. That's our estimation. Now, can we mandate this? No. I don't know if this comes as a surprise, but all of you are here on your own volition today. We can't mandate it. We're not going to police it. But we are going to advocate for it. We are going to encourage it. So my request to you this morning is try it. (laughs) What do you have to lose? Try it. Commit to these groups. Get get invested. It's like working out, right? You're, You're going to get out of it what you put into it. You give minimal effort, you're going to get minimal results and minimal fruit. You pour into it, invest in it, you're going to see those things grow exponentially. And so try it, but do so, as I said last week, with the devoted mindset, not the consumeristic one. Don't show up going, all right, let me evaluate this, teacher was okay, friends, kind of weird, I don't know if they were really welcoming, there was no coffee, Eh, I don't know if I'm going to go back. Don't do that. Come in with a devoted mindset. Who are you? How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I encourage you? That's the mentality that we need to take. Now, I know that at some point, you're going to ask the question. You're probably already asking it. Seems like a lot, Jeremiah. There's a reason churches typically just ask for two. And you're asking for three? Come on now. I mean, I, I hear you. Sunny Connect could be good, but gosh, I work late on Saturdays. Nine o'clock comes early. I've got a young family. I've just, that's just going to be really difficult for me. And I just, I'm going to settle for just a couple of these things. Gosh, man, meeting outside on Sunday morning. I've got Sunday morning set aside, but my job, it goes late. I don't have time. We've got soccer. We've got activities. We've got all these other things. I don't have time to fill in one more group. Okay, so let me let me tell you how I I would respond to that. How many mathematicians do we have in the room? Who can tell me what seven times 24 is? 168. Everybody go home and work on your math. I'm kidding, I did it by calculator earlier too. 168. 168 hours in a week. Guess what? That's what everyone has. Everyone has 168 hours in a week. Let me go ahead and tell you the obvious answer. Jesus gets all of them, not a portion. I'm not talking about church. I'm talking about Jesus. Every single one of them belong to him. So when you wake up in the morning and you see your family, your call is to love your family like Christ would have you love your family. When you go to work or you go to school and you see a colleague or you see a classmate, you need to be reminded that you're not there to earn a grade or earn a paycheck. You are there to open people's eyes to the living hope of Jesus Christ. When you come home, and you're driving down your street, and you're passing these houses, you should have your mind flooded with names and stories and things that people are going through because you know God put you in that neighborhood for a reason, and you're there to open people's minds to the living hope of Jesus Christ. Jesus gets every single one of them, okay? The question is, are you prepared for that? When you start running into those situations, will you be ready? Do you know what to do? What to say? How to say it? What have you been trained? Have you been equipped? If you haven't, you'll run into those things and not long before you realize you're overwhelmed. So what I've asked you, let's say you, you say yes. Let's say you decide to come to Sunday Connect and service. You get her on time. Good job. It's hard for me, but you get her on time. You're here by nine. And you, now you go through service and, well, preacher went a little long again. So now I'm not really in my car until 12. You gave three hours on Sunday morning. And now I'm going to embrace this discipleship group thing. Okay, I'm going to try it. And man, because it's not at church, it's probably going to last longer. Because somebody's going to host, and we might actually have to have coffee and small talk. And so it's going to go two hours. So now I've given five hours out of my week. You know what that is? Five out of 168? It's 2%. 2% of your week is what we're talking about to give to equipping and training. Now let's say you're, you're kind of the overachiever, and you're here on Wednesdays and you're serving with our children, you're singing in choir, coming to prayer meeting, let's add another hour. You've given six hours of your week. That's three and a half percent. If anything, church, we can do more. This is what we need to embrace the devoted life so that we can grow and challenge one another to pursue these stories of transformation, to be the light in a dark place, to see signs and wonders that demonstrate the love and the living hope of Jesus Christ. It is worth it. So let's commit to it, and let's expect amazing things. When I was younger, um, I loved playing sports. Let me close with this. I, I would go uh, play all sorts of sports. The one that was the easiest to play by yourself was basketball, by far, right? You can just go outside, and you can shoot. So I'd, I'd get a basketball. I'd go outside my driveway. I'd start shooting hoops, and, and it was usually one of two things. I'd either challenge myself on a particular task, right? Like, how many free throws can you make without missing it? Can you do around the world without missing more than two shots? And and I would challenge myself, or I'd pretend, right? And I'd I'd be in the driveway, and it'd be championship game, right? Game seven, NBA finals. Here's Jeremiah with the ball. And I'd be going through these scenarios, and then the countdown would start. Five, four, three, two, one. He fades back. He shoots. And if it made it, victory. If I missed, halftime, right? Right? It's great. I was pretending, though, and I was imagining this experience. Not one time did I imagine being a spectator. Not one time did I think, what would it be like to be in the stands? I imagined being the thick of it. Hear me, church. I don't want us to be people that want to be spectators, and I don't want us to be a church that wants to spectate. I want us to imagine the wonders and signs that God can do in your life and in this church. So that's how I want to end. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to think about the wonders that you need God to do in your life. I want you to picture it for a moment. Maybe it's reconciliation with a spouse. Maybe it's healing of cancer. Maybe it's bringing in a wayward child. You need to see transformation. You need to see something miraculous. What is it? Maybe it's a personal struggle that you're going through. An addiction, a sense of loneliness. What, what are those things? I want you to imagine victory. I want you to understand the power of the miraculous. I want you to think about this church. I want you to think what can take place with a body of believers that are equipped and ready to, to pursue God's call at all costs. What wonders and signs can take place in this church? I want you to imagine the baptistry filled with stories of transformation. I want you to imagine people that have been far off being brought near. I want you to imagine the richness of diversity. People of all different races and skin colors and different backgrounds coming together and worshiping with praise and an inexpressible and glorious joy. I want you to imagine it and picture it, church. I want you to make it your prayer. I want you to lay it at the feet of our Creator with fear and trembling. I want us to do so boldly with faith and with maturity. To eagerly expect the power of God to be at work in our lives, in this church, this community, in this world. I want you to imagine every tongue, tribe, and nation coming to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for these things because we know you are a God who does miraculous signs and wonders. You're a God who transforms, and so I ask for all those personal prayers that have just been offered. God, the areas of reconciliation, the areas of of redemption and saving that need to take place in people's lives, God, I pray that you would heal, that you would respond, that you would comfort, that you would lead. God, that we would truly be able to see your hand at work in mighty ways. I pray for this church, God, that you would ignite something within us, that you would set us ablaze, not for our names to be promoted, but for your glory and your renown to be exalted among the nations. God, we love you. We are grateful for this gospel that compels us, that redeems, that saves. May we devote ourselves to you both today and forevermore. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.